This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Guys, I've been looking forward to today's guest for a long time. He's the pastor of Greater Zion Church Family in the great city of Compton, and just an incredibly inspiring leader. And we're going to talk about, well, exactly that, being a leader. We've been talking a great deal these days on Good Faith Effort about the book of Numbers. And one of the book's most important themes, something that happens in it again and again, is rebellion. The Israelites rebel against God. They rebel against the leadership of Moses and Aaron and on and on and on. So reading Numbers, you get the sense that the Bible is all about like the establishment, the status quo, crushing rebellion. Well, over 50 years ago, my grandfather, my teacher, one of the great Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, Rabbi Norman Lamb, whom I've mentioned on the show many times before and who we lost this past year, still feels impossible to imagine the world without him and his wisdom. But it was over 50 years ago, my grandfather took up this very question, and he argued that it would be a terrible shame to read the Bible and not realize its revolutionary character. And here's what he said. It's one of my favorite quotes from him. He said, what is the prophetic tradition, if not the expression of a revolutionary character? It had its genesis in Abraham, who was an iconoclast, reached its heights in Moses, who defied Pharaoh and both the military might and cultural hegemony of Egypt. Elijah was a revolutionary when he challenged Ahab, Isaiah when he thundered against the drunkards who ruled the northern kingdom of Israel, and Ezekiel when he dissented from the popular worship of Bel and Marduk. Yes, of course, the Bible demands obedience to God. And without that sense of obedience, by the way, that sense that we serve a higher authority, we're just like moral anarchists. But we can't ever forget that our commitment to God will often and should often make us agents of counterculture. The kind of people who, through our teaching, but especially through our own conduct, inspire people to transform the world that is into the world as it could be. And there have been times in the course of human affairs where we could just use like a little more stability. And I know in the wake of a pandemic, it seems like stability is just what we need. But I actually think we have the opposite problem today here in America because our society is actually really complacent and decadent. Society is getting older. We're having fewer kids. We're more risk-averse. The rate of entrepreneurship is down. Our political institutions and arrangements increasingly feel like they got permanently locked in during the 80s or even the 60s. Terrible injustices in society feel like they just keep going longer and longer without being solved. And just as it feels like people need religion the most, the old ways of delivering that to people are increasingly unattractive. So like old school church attendance just dropped below 50% for the first time in American history. And at the same time, of course, you know, more young Americans than at any time in a decade or more, according to Pew, say they're searching for spiritual fulfillment. But who's meeting that need? And it's clear to me, at least, that what we need right now is not just the stability of religion in response to a pandemic, but also the revolutionary spirit of religion. If we're going to build a society that we, and more importantly, God can be proud of. So to unpack all this... I invited on one of the most passionate, innovative faith leaders in the country. He's the pastor of Greater Zion Church Family. He's a gospel artist. He's an amazing voice for faith in America. We've got Pastor Michael Fisher with us today. Pastor Michael, thank you for being here. I appreciate it, man. That's a huge introduction. (laughs) That's how we roll. It's good faith effort. Let's do it. So, Pastor, your father, Reverend Jerome Fisher, he built the first African-American church in Compton, and that's an amazing legacy. So what unique perspective did that give him And did that give you through him on life, politics and Compton and America at large? What unique perspective do you bring from that background? 
I'm actually a third generation pastor. So it actually starts with my grandfather, who way back in the early 1900s did something that an African-American could not do or was said not to be able to do. And that is he built and established eight churches around the country. He originated his building of churches in Louisiana and then eventually settled in Chicago, Illinois, but then eventually settled in Los Angeles, built a church in Long Beach, built a church in Watts, and then eventually it settled in Compton. And then from there, my father goes to Compton in 1953, 1954, and organizes then what was called Little Zion Missionary Baptist Church. And so what that did for me in my history is let me know that I come from a legacy of path makers. They don't follow other people's paths and that they definitely use their faith in God to initiate this move for the advancement of the people of color and marginalized people. So my grandfather did it for Blacks during the 1900s. And then my father did it during the civil rights movement. And then now here I am doing it again, unfortunately, in the same climate as we move a generation through what I like to say, the revised Jim Crow era. Wow. The story that you're telling, it's so amazing. And by the way, first of all, it resonates, right? Coming from a rabbinic family myself, though in my case, it skipped a generation. But, you know, (laughs) we're like rabbis going all the way back into like the deep, dark mists of Poland, you know what I mean? So I know there's always like, People talk about pastor's kid syndrome or rabbi's kid syndrome, but I'm always so much more interested to hear about the opportunities or the positives, right? So what did you learn? What were the positives of being a pastor's kid? Well, I think I was able to see how you can influence a culture. You can shift a community. You can change the minds of a generation. You can change the minds of people through not just the preaching of faith in God and the preaching of the power of God, but then also leveraging your platform to become like this conduit for the needs of the people to the people that have the power. So for me, watching my father sit in city council meetings, watching my father in 1988 administer the opening prayer for the U.S. House of Representatives as a Black man, Watching my father literally give a documentary or documentation about how he was a part of Dachau when they went to Normandy and he actually rescued some of our Jewish brothers and sisters during World War II. Wow. So I was privileged to be able to see, I like to say, the biblical demonstrations of God through a man, right? So you read those stories about Abraham, right? And they're so poetic. The Bible is so poetic. I love it. You know, God takes Moses and he says, you know, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the Red Sea parts overnight. Uh, Of course, the Ten Commandment version is that it happens in five seconds, whatever. But oh man, I, is, I have like takes for days on that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but the point is, is that I've been privileged to be able to watch that kind of demonstration right in my own house, in my own home. I've sat in the midst of dignitaries, every major Black politician that has sat in the Senate or the Congress or assembly seat in California has sat in the dining room table of my father. Every mayor that has sat in the seat of Compton sat in the living room of my father's house. And that tradition continues. I have a relationship with them as well. 
So I wasn't burned with the whole pastor's kid syndrome. I mean, it's a lot. You have expectations that are placed on you. For some reason, people think you're supposed to be holier than thou. But I saw the good side of it. I saw that you can actually take power that God gives you and not get drunk on it, but actually use it to help other people to be able to advance. Man, after this podcast, we just need to go out and get coffee together. Like that was uh, <laughs> like my, so my grandfather was the president of Yeshiva University. His name is Rabbi Norman wow. Lamb. And everything you just said just so resonated with me. Like I can remember him speaking with, interacting with, writing with, going on TV, all these things with all these amazing people and just watching him keep that same sense of mission, of purpose, of deep learning, of spirituality was so inspiring. I get shivers still when I think of it. I'm like getting shivers for you. Like it's crazy to think about that. So speaking of tying some of the things that you've said, learning from your father, watching him use his abilities to actually influence the community and the society, in the wider society, talking about the revised Jim Crow era. So one of the things that I've thought about often, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, I had Van Lathan from, from Higher Learning on The Ringer come on here, and we talked about this oh. also. Um, Van's the best. Happy birthday to Van. I think that was recent. Congratulations on the Oscar. One of the things we talked about was how the Jewish and black communities are both so valuable for the U.S. because one thing that I take as kind of like a given is that if we're going to solve any of the problems that we have as a society, the Bible has to be, and its values, its ideas, its lexicon, its vocabulary, it has to be a part of the solution. That's just who we are as a country. It's who we've always been. And we are both communities, the Jewish and black communities in America, that have a tradition, a deep, long, and still really persistent tradition, if anything, it's getting more persistent, of studying and loving the Bible, but without confusing it with power or keeping it at arm's length from power. So mm -hmm. I think we have some unique things to teach the wider American society about the power of the Bible. And I have some ideas about what that might be on the Jewish end. But what about the black community? What unique perspective on the kind of traditions that do in many cases and can bind us together? What unique perspectives does your community have or do you as just a, a pastor in that community have? Well, you know, I oftentimes tell people that the Jewish community and the Black community really have almost the exact same story. It goes hand in hand. And I think it's an unfortunate narrative when they try to compare and contrast the atrocities such as the Holocaust versus the slave trade. It's all horrible. It's all an abuse of power. And it's all to try to eliminate a people that people of power felt threatened by. But here's where we unify, is that we both tapped into this narrative, this faith in a God who seems to love the underdog, right? He loves those that people give up on or try to abuse, and he loves to protect them. He loves to love them, and then he loves to lift them so that they can show those who try to oppress them his love, his character, his integrity, his values. So from the Black community, that has actually been the thing that we've embraced from the Bible. You know, uh, when we came over here, white America used the Bible to justify enslavement, to enforce servitude, and to put the fear of God in us so that we would remain docile and continue to carry out their agenda to use us um, as slaves. But then the way that God would have it, our ancestors started reading on their own and came into the knowledge of the love of God. 
and that this God had a history of freeing enslaved people. This is where we first really start falling in love with Israel, right? Because we sit here and history shows us that when Israel was enslaved with Egypt, that God says this one phrase, and most Blacks carry this. It's where we get the spiritual, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home, right? It's this notion of, I've heard the cry of my people. Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That one concept has been the driving force of the Harriet Tubmans, the Frederick Douglasses the Booker T. Washingtons. It's been the driving force for the civil rights movement where Martin Luther King, you know, speaks to the president. And it is the driving force of this modern Jim Crow era where we stand to those in seats of power and say, change policy, reform the legislation. We're talking to Pharaoh and we're demanding that our people be let go. So we've used the Bible. We've used our faith in God to free us from the propensity you have to be bitter, angry, upset, vengeful. And we've actually used it to say what we believe when, you know, our teacher, Jesus teaches us on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We've used the Bible to heal ourselves and to, to teach us to never be our oppressor, but rather to teach the oppressor a better way of life, living, and we choose love over hate. And we believe that God is going to empower us and raise us up the same way he did Israel. So that is our unique perspective on the Bible and how we've used it to persevere now for 400 years. It's amazing. And, and you know, one of the things that kind of drives me nuts is when you look at the mainstream culture, often in the pop culture, there's this sense that like, oh, the Bible, it's like got all this like nice wisdom in it, honor your parents. But there's some stuff that's like so irrelevant now. Like the thing that the Bible's obsessed with is fighting idolatry. Like no one worships idols anymore. So like, who cares? I feel like that's maybe the most foolish thing you could possibly think. Like idolatry <laughs> yes. seems to me like the number one issue that we <laughs> confront in this country. So I guess I have two questions for you. One is what are the idolatries of our modern day? And number two, how do we get Americans outside of our two communities, like normal everyday Americans to remember that vocabulary and like use it because it's so powerful. Like every bit of language we have for condemning things, right? Like it comes from condemning that practice, right? It's like, what are the idolatries of the day and how do we bring that language back? You know, first of all, I love this interview. <laughs> I've been on hundreds of podcasts. I don't always have fun, but I'm enjoying this one. And please, man, we got to do lunch. Oh my God, I'm in. Yeah, we got to. I can imagine the conversations we'll have would be hours, like the days of old when the rabbis came together and talked forever. Oh my God, we're making it um, happen. By the way, the kosher yeah, food so, has gotten so good. So <laughs> kosher food's on me, baby. Uh, well, cool. So that question is so on point because it is the very thing that I am preaching against and fighting right now is that I'm like, are you kidding me? There's so many idols now, more than I've probably ever seen before, which is the reason why we're seeing the fall off in attendance in the church. We have superstars that are idols. In white evangelical church, President Trump was an idol. America is an idol. They're more excited about preserving America and the forefathers than abiding by the principles of the Bible. In the Black community, 
It's money. It's riches. It's the gold. It's the clothes. It's the Air Jordans. It's the things. And idolatry is any false god that you exalt above the true and living God. Anything that you equate your life, your value to. God tells us that he wants us to equate all that we have and all that we are to him. And anything else that we give that credit to becomes an idol. The country's in trouble. You know, all throughout the Bible, we start off in the Torah, in what we call the Old Testament, and there's always a rebuke against Babylon. You jump all the way to Revelation, and here comes Babylon again, you know, because what has not changed is man's obsession with wanting to be a god. Babylon 2, we back. <laughs> yeah, we back, you know, and, 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 not, and not to ramble, but one of the things that people don't realize is, and I preached against like the narrative of Jay-Z. So the rap community is coming up with this whole concept of I'm a God and I'm a God because what I did for my community, God didn't do it. I did it. Right. And so now you have this generation looking to Jay-Z, Beyonce, you know, they're starting to do their videos using these ancestral idol gods that come from Africa. And I tell this generation, you got to be very careful of that. You got to be very careful of that. You have to work against falling into the idol worship of our ancestors. And I'll close with this. The interesting thing is that when I found out and learned that Abraham, you know, kind of came from a land of idolatry himself, you know, and he chooses to follow God, this voice that he hears, you know, then Israel is consistently making a choice to follow God and believe that he's the true and living God and resist all of our natural thing that we have in us to want to worship something we can see, a statue we can build. And so just like when they built the golden calf, when they was waiting on Moses to come back down with the law, I feel like our culture and generation is starting to build golden calves in our superstars, our artists, our speakers, our presidents, our politicians, because we're not patient enough to wait for the invisible God to show up with his visible plan. That's amazing. <laughs> Such a good answer. <laughs> so one thing you said, I actually want to pick up on it, which is when I look at the world of where the music I love is going, I feel like, and maybe I'm reaching here, but I feel like there's a parallel move going on in music coming out of, let's say, like Compton and music coming out of Jerusalem. People are not as familiar with the music coming out of Jerusalem these days, but I'll just set it up right. for you, right? So like music coming out of Compton, which defines the history of popular music in America. So when I'm growing up, you know, I'm growing up in the 90s, like the big artists are like NWA, meaning it's all music of kind of the sort you described. And it's definitely, there's a lot of anger. It's kind of documenting the realities that are that are happening on the ground in Compton. But it's very, like, stark. It's really stark. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, the music that you have coming out of Compton, like the two most popular hip-hop artists in the country, like Kendrick Lamar, Vince Staples. So, first of all, there's the same, like, righteous anger. There's the same pursuit of justice. But what's so interesting about it is that it's, like, laced through with religion, with the Bible. Like, it really... I mean, these are two, like, artists who are serious Christians. And there's this real like investment in the tradition. And similarly, you know, when I think about kind of popular music, let's say coming out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, right? So probably even before I was growing up, but 
like through my parents' generation, you know, it's all like pioneer songs and like very like can do, do it yourself. Like I'm building a house and I'm planting a tree and it's all very like self-focused. Nowadays, the most popular stuff coming out of Israel, both by religious artists and, and you know, non-observant artists, it's all looking back at tradition, at like traditional poetry and traditional themes and legends and weaving that into a new feeling. So is there a comeback for tradition, for faith, for religion on the horizon? Most definitely, because for us in the Black community, at the core of every significant movement where our people move the needle, our faith in God was at the center of that. What happened in the 80s, and I want to say even the 90s, was this false version of the gospel, this prosperity gospel that came up that was preaching, you know, if you give $100, you know, God's going to bless you with two houses and if you touch the TV, you'll be healed. And what happened with that generation was they became very jaded because, I mean, you can't prostitute God. And they found that out real quick. And so when they realized that that version of church wasn't working, you stopped hearing about the Bible. You stopped hearing about church in a lot of their songs and a lot of their rap lyrics. And they started feeling like, you know, the church is all about getting a jet for the mega preacher and building these big churches so we kind of out here on our own. So that's why a lot of those messages are very self-empowered. And then also in the 80s and 90s, Malcolm X was out at that time. So everybody was, you know, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey. And we was getting in touch with our heritage. Milana Karenga, who was one of my professors, he's the founder of Kwanzaa. He was a professor at that time at Cal State Long Beach. So we're seeing the rise of the HBCUs. We're seeing the rise of just Black power. So that's where those lyrics came from. Well, now... You get the Kendrick Lamars and them who our generation is now losing exactly what you just talked about. The patriarchs, you know, my father passed away 2019. My mother just passed away uh, February 12th. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, February 12th, wow, uh, which is why it was complicated getting me on because some days I was good and some days I was like, I don't want to do anything. I don't care. I'm so sorry. May her memory be a blessing. Yes. But when you have a generation that's watching the forefathers, the patriarchs and the matriarchs go home, there's this awakening that happens where it's like, oh, wait, I need to grab hold to what they had for myself now. I can't just leave it up to grandma to believe in mm. God because she's gone. I now need to find out that God that she believed in that carried her through all of those riots and all of those injustices. And that's what you're hearing in the lyrics, a reawakening of that. They're rediscovering God with every passing of a grandma, grandfather, father, and mother. They're rediscovering the God that carried that matriarch, that ancestor through the struggles. And that's why you're hearing the Kendrick Lamars and the other rap artists coming up and re-implementing Bible. That's why you get a Kanye West who after his mother passed, he started going on this spiritual journey and eventually he comes and lands with this choir that he has. That's why you have a Pharrell who is bringing out another choir out of the Carolinas and they're incorporating now everything back to faith. That's why that's happening. Wow, amazing. So I want to shift gears for a second and ask you one last question. I'll go for it. And that is, you took over your father's church when you were just 25 which is super young, but, you know, I remember, you know, being in the rabbinate and I remember from my own experience, 
that's what happens. Like they take you, you're like, you're a young kid, you're getting ordination and they stick you in the synagogue. And all of a sudden you have to like tell people in like their sixties and seventies how to behave or like even people in their like thirties and forties, but still you're like a young 20, right? <laughs> right, right. And I remember that when they would speak to me about it or give me advice or, or what have you, they would always treat it like an obstacle that you had to overcome. And I get it. Cause you know, when you're telling a 60 year old person, you know, who's been through it, like how to live, that takes some gumption. Yes. But at the same time, I always, and I still do, if not more so even now, I, I look at it as such an advantage being a young leader, a young pastor, young rabbi. So in your experience, especially growing a church the way that you've done, um, the Greater Zion Church, what advantages does it bring being like a young leader, a young pastor in the, in the world of faith today? I think that when you are young, just like in anything, you are moldable, right? And that fear factor is, hasn't locked in yet. So when you're young, when you're young, you're apt to jump off a roof with a towel around your neck because you think you have superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> you have no concept of, I can break a bone. You don't care, right? And as you get older, you're like, oh, listen, I'm going to walk down these stairs holding the rail. You know, because <laughs> I was like, it's Seinfeld. Like that's morning Jerry's problem, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, man. You know, so the fear factor begins to settle in, you know, you kind of become more rigid. The older you get, it's just natural. So the advantage that I believe a young leader has is that they are more apt to look for God in everything. You know, they're apt to break the rules. You know, they're apt to say what needs to be said because they don't have the fear of the backlash. When you get older, now you have a 401k. Now you're looking at your influence you built up and you're like, mm, I don't know if I want to say that because I don't want to lose my platform. When you're young, you're like, screw the platform. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm going to say it. I'm just going to go on good faith effort and say whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I mean, that's the difference. Like if you read our New Testament writings, you see the difference in a young Paul and an older Paul, right? So Older Paul is a bit more gracious and he minces his word. Young Paul, oh my gosh, <laughs> like he was no joke. And so with me, when I was younger, I think God really used my, I call it the fireball. You know, he used that to really move the needle forward. You know, I wasn't scared to talk to the mayor and tell them, you know, because you really have that revolutionary side when you're young, you know you really do feel like you're Moses standing in front of Pharaoh, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to the mayor being like, you know, you better change the policy and change it now. I was doing things like, you know, we marched down the street with like 250 people. I didn't apply for a permit. I <laughs> <laughs> the, the police showed up and I remember telling the sheriffs like, are you going to tell these 250 people that they are wrong for asking for peace in their city? You tell them. Next thing I know, they escorted us. <laughs> now, because of my relationship with the governmental officials, I may actually go in first and ask them and say, hey, I'm going to have a protest. I want to let you guys know. So for anyone that's listening, if you're young, you know, I think that you you have the advantage. Do it before fear factor sets in. It happens to everyone. It doesn't matter how much you say you don't want it to happen. It happens to everyone. You get rigid. You begin to honor more traditions, even a thing you call radical at a time because of tradition you honor. You're less apt to go left, you know, and get out of the lane. So when you're young, 
And I believe all throughout the biblical writings, this is why God was attracted to calling young people because he knew that they just didn't have that fear. They're fearless. You know, how many times does God warn us about fear? Every five seconds, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. And the older someone gets, the more he's like, stop being afraid, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And it's because something sets in when you get older. And so when I was young, and I'm still young, but when I was younger, I believe God could use that, that bravery, that fire. And so I think that's the advantage that you have when you're young. That's incredible. You know what it reminds me of? Like, there's this old, very, very ancient Jewish tradition of translating the Hebrew words of the Bible into Aramaic. Mm-hmm. It's called Targum. It just means translation. But those translations have, like, every now and then little or sometimes really extensive commentaries in them or legends or stories. One of my favorite ones, it's one that was lost for like hundreds of years. They found it in like a library in France, like it had been confiscated by the church or something like that. What it says is that at the end of Moses's life in Deuteronomy, so in Deuteronomy, Moses asks God, like he begs him, he says, let me into the promised land. Please let me in just one time. And God says to him, you're asking too much. In Hebrew, he says, Rav Lecha, you're asking too much. No. And the answer is no. And what the Aramaic translator adds in there is a little comment. And he says, why did God say this to him? He says, because if you think all the way back to the book of Numbers, there's a similar scene where Moses is standing there and Korah is standing in front of Moses. And he's also, he's asking tough questions and he's a rebel and, you know, God ends up punishing him, but he's a rebel. And he's challenging Moses as the establishment, as the leader. And Moses in the Hebrew says the exact same thing to Korah as God said to him. He says, Rav Lachem B'nei Levi. He says, the Levites, enough. Like, stop talking to me. You're asking too much. And the Aramaic translator says that God ended up punishing Moses for responding to Korah that way. Even though Korah was a rebel, even though he was asking for the wrong thing, even though he was a villain, you can't ever forget that revolutionary spirit. You can't ever forget what it was like for you, Moses, as a young man to stand up in front of Pharaoh and demand justice. Did you do it perfectly? Maybe not. I don't know. But you can't ever forget that revolutionary posture. And if you do, that's when you can't make it into the promised land. You know, my father told me, and I'll never forget this. He said, when you get too old to change, you need to retire. And it was one of the main reasons why he turned the church over to me. Wow. He realized that he had reached an age where he wasn't going to change anymore. He was like, I've done all the change that I'm going to do. I don't want to know the new artists. I don't want to know the new cultural stuff. I'm done. And then he said, but my son, who's 25, he's ready to begin. And my father never suppressed that radicalness. I mean, I think sometimes it made him afraid, like, oh my God, he's going to get us in so much trouble. But he remembered what he did in his time that got the church where it was. And he knew that the church and the community needed my fire. And so, yeah, just to add to that point, it's so same for me. Like, I believe- I love it. I believe that there comes a time when you look up and say, well, you know, I'm not going to learn anything else And at that moment is when you need to sit down and turn it over to the next generation and let them do it. I find this, and and I've done, I have a youth pastor, a youth overseer. He's 29. I'll be 42 in July. And an issue happened and he just went off like on, on Instagram about it. Like he's just radical. He's going in. And someone called me. It was like, you need to do something about your youth pastor. And before I got ready to do anything, one of my assistants who's been with me since I was 20, She told me, don't you say nothing. You did the same thing. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) 
<laughs> don't you say nothing. You did the same thing. So all I do is just, I try to now direct that fire, that flame. I don't want to extinguish it. And the moment I get there, I'm going to step down and give it to somebody else. I love it. It's like, if you can't tell who in the room is Pharaoh, it's you. <laughs> right. That's so good. <laughs> Amen. Pastor Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. You're amazing. Thank you. And you know what? From my family to yours, we also express condolences to you. When you said that feeling of like, it just doesn't seem real that he's gone. Trust me. I know that feeling. It'll never go away. You just learn to kind of just live with it. But we're praying for you as well, my friend. Likewise. And I can't wait to exchange the condolences and also the the good cheer and the good news in person when we meet. You bring the kosher food. I'm going to bring some some soul food and we're going to all we all, all try this stuff together. So who's going to lead the way in solving the problems and seizing the opportunities of today and tomorrow? Will it be old people? They have the experience after all. Or will it be young people? They've got the creativity and that willingness to charge ahead. For my money, I think it's a false choice. You need that fire of youth and you also need that wisdom of the past and of experience. So if you cash that out, what that means is we need to tie together the old and young, tradition and tomorrow. And the best way we know how to do that is through the traditions of faith, which give us that sense of rootedness to keep society grounded and virtuous, while at the same time giving us that radical sensibility we need to tackle injustice, increase our compassion, and change the things that need to be changed. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. And if you like the show, then the best thing you can do to help us is give us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and throw us a review while you're at it. And if you do, just let me know. Hit me up on Twitter and I'll let the world know that you are amazing. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.